Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Tudo Português. My name is Angela Simões, and I am here with one of our community members from New York, George Reis. Hi, George. Welcome to the show. Hello, Angela. Thank you very much. And George sent us an email wanting to be on the podcast to talk about the Portuguese philosopher, philosopher <laughs> sorry about that, Augustine da Silva. And I will admit that I did not know who this person was, so I had to do a little bit of research. And he was fascinating. Um, also learned about the contest, and you'll tell us a little bit more about this, George. I think I said that the right way. So, I mean, this is the first time we're really talking about a historical figure, a philosopher specifically, and I think it's a great offshoot or angle to take with this podcast because we do talk about all things Portuguese, right? And so this is a great topic. So thank you for suggesting it, George. Why don't we start by you just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you started to follow Agostinho's work? Thank you very much, Angela. I'm very uh, grateful for the for the invitation. So uh, my name is George Reyes. I uh, live in New York City in Brooklyn. My parents were from uh, Portugal. They grew up in Portugal. My mother was from Vila Nova da Gaia. My father was from Beira Alta, a little a little aldeia called Juncais near Foruzalgo in Beira Alta. Oh my God, George! We are related. Really. We are related somehow because my ancestors are from Junkaij. <laughs> You're kidding. I am not kidding. I am not kidding. Uh, I don't know if I can continue now with this. <laughs> That's amazing. I've never met anyone else who even knew where Junkaij was. That's amazing. <laughs> That's going to be another conversation. And yes, a, yes, that is. So, okay, I'm just gathering my thoughts now. <laughs> so my parents were, were from Portugal. My father came to the U.S. in 1952. He went to uh, medical school at University of Porto and, and came to the U.S. right after medical school and came first to New York City. And my mother came the year before I was born. And they got married uh, in 1966. I was born in 67. I grew up in Massachusetts till I was about, till uh, like 1979. So I was about 12 years old. And then uh, we moved to Florida. So I went to junior high and high school in Florida. So I was never, I was never really that plugged into the Portuguese American community, either in in Massachusetts or in Florida, I would, you know, I, the Portuguese that I cared about were in Portugal, my aunts and uncles, my, you know, my cousins, those are the people that I really, that mattered to me. But I was, you know, I, I, I'm an American. So I was very mm -hmm. much in American culture, but I developed over the years an interest in Portuguese culture. And that's, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. About 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, uh, a Facebook friend of mine, a very uh, interesting person, posted a meme on her page with a quote that I thought was kind of interesting, but I didn't recognize the name or the photograph of the person associated with a quote. And the quote was, Chamo a liberdade a minha ignorância do destino e do destino a minha ignorar da liberdade. So what I call freedom is 
ignorance of my own destiny and what I call my destiny is how I ignore my freedom. So it's kind of a puzzle. I'm still not sure I understand what that means exactly, but I thought interesting puzzle. And I saw the name Agustino da Silva and I was a Portuguese major in college. I was an erratic student, so I'm certainly no expert, but I knew the big names of Portuguese literature and culture, but I didn't name Agustino da Silva. And, you know, in the, in the photograph, he's, you know, an elderly man. I thought, boy, I, I shouldn't. I know who this is, I guess, I, but I've never heard of him. So I started poking around on the Internet and I, I came across a television series, an RTP series from the late 80s, early 90s called Conversas Vedias. And this was a series of 13 interviews, about 30 minutes each conducted by journalists and pundits and, uh, of the time in Portugal, speaking to Agustino da Silva. Conversas vedias, you could sort of translate that as idle conversations. Mm -hmm. They were just kind of freewheeling conversations about, you know, whatever came up. And the first thing I thought when, when I was listening to this, I started listening to these things. The first thing I thought is, he sounds like my dad. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> He's like my father, I later found out he uh, he was from a small town, not very far from uh, Juncais, about 60 miles from Juncais, called Bar Barca da Alva. He also went to uh, University of Porto and did a, a PhD in, uh, in classical philology. So I th first I just was, uh, you know, was interested because he sound, it, it sounded like my father talked. And then as I started to listen, I became interested in what he was actually saying. And he would say something like, you know, the Portuguese monarchy of the 13th century was the only monarchy that could be voted out of office. The only, the Portuguese monarch was the only one in the world who could be voted out. <laughs> so if he was not performing, he was not doing his job or he was incompetent or, or unfit, he could be voted out. So the Portuguese had the best of both worlds. They had a democratic, but they also had the, the benefits of, you know, the divine right of kings. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, that's interesting. I didn't know Portugal still had monarchists. <laughs> I thought, mm -hmm. that's really, that's very interesting. He, the guy, okay, he's a monarchist, so he's from the far right. And then I kept listening. I've listened. And then he starts talking about education. And he says, well, I don't really, you know, there's really not a, a good reason to teach children how to read until they ask to be taught how to read. Oh, gosh. So if they don't ask until they're, say, 14, I don't see a problem with that. And I thought, wow, the guy, he's an anarchist. He's a <laughs> far left winger. I mean, he's completely, you know, freedom, anarchy. And what I discovered as I, I listened to these interviews and started just reading about him was that I couldn't peg him as a liberal or a conservative. In the United States, you're either a liberal or a conservative, right. very politically divided, and it's very contentious. You have to choose one side. And Agustino was very clear to me, didn't choose a side. He, he thought for himself, and he was very rigorous in, in what he thought. And what I also found very interesting is that he combined very old ideas, both from Western civilization and specifically from Portuguese culture, to address very modern questions. 
he was obsessed mostly with two things, liberty, human freedom, and inclusion. These are two things that people talk about now, very, mm-hmm. and they have all kinds of implications. And he discussed in ways that I think were very unique. These things have implications for ecology, for politics, spirituality, the economy. And he just, he provided to me a fresh way of thinking based in very old concepts, very old ideas and very, very Portuguese ideas. Mm -hmm. To me, I thought, you know, the most audacious thing that he said is that the Portuguese have figured out a way of living that that could be the future of humanity. (laughs) And I thought, okay, guy's out of his mind. I mean, he's really... (laughs) Now he's just, he's gone beyond like common sense. And, but the more I, I, I would dive into his ideas, the more interesting they became. I, I can't say that I agree with everything, but he, he's always thought provoking and always impossible to classify. So during the pandemic, I started to have some extra time and I, I started following a professor, Professor Paulo Borges from the University of Lisbon, who's a philosophy professor there. He's now semi-retired. So he offered a, an online course on the thought of Agostinho da Silva. And it was six meetings online. And I found that very useful to sort of start to think about Agostinho in a more organized way. Because basically, what I, essentially what I've done with Agostinho because I have a full-time job and which I enjoy. My time is limited for extracurricular stuff. But essentially what I do is there, I look at Facebook and there are several Facebook groups. One of them has 60,000 members, Agustina de Silva Association, and, and, and there's a few other groups. And they periodically post an excerpt from one of his books. And I translate them. I translate them into English, mostly for myself, because I see an idea there that I want to understand better. Agustinho mm-hmm. spoke like my father, like my father. He spoke in that old-fashioned, very formal kind of diction, even just in his everyday speech. Hmm. So there, there, he expresses himself, I think, in a way that's very quotable and very accessible to common people, to common people like me, who are not you know, professional philosophers. But at the same time, because he's Portuguese, he speaks in a formal way. And so to translate that into, into language that is accessible to an American reader, an Anglo-American reader, it takes a little bit of work. So I use Google Translate, and then I correct Google Translate's errors and I come up with my own my own translation. And so that's just what I do for fun. And I recently looked, I have like, like 30 or 40 of these uh, translations that I've saved up. And I started to think about Agustinho in a more uh, systematic way. And what's, what's clear to me is that he's, he's a philosopher of paradox. So while he's a sophisticated person with a PhD, his... And, and academics in Portugal never really paid attention to him because he was perceived as a philosopher of the people, very accessible. He speaks in a language that is accessible to everyday Portuguese. And then, you know, I started to learn that 
you know, he was very prominent in Portugal, but he was even more prominent, more influential in Brazil, hmm. where he found, he was one of the co-founders of five universities. Wow. Including the University of Brasilia. He was, and he was the first person who, who established a center, an academic center, I believe at the University of, uh, in Bahia, that that provided formal academic links between Afro-Brazilians and West African academics. And so, because he saw that, you know, the, the, the largest group of the African diaspora is in Brazil. And mm -hmm. so it's a very, you know, prominent, exuberant Afro-Brazilian culture, but they didn't, their academics, Afro-Brazilian academics, didn't have established ties with academics in West Africa. So he founded that, that center and he, and he did all sorts of other things. He was the minister of culture in, I, th I believe in Santa Catarina. And he became very influential among Brazilians, especially you know that generation, uh, Musica Popular Brasileira, that MPB, the Caetano Veloso generation. Mm -hmm. Apparently they all knew him and they, 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 sought, they sought him out for advice. And, you know, the more I learn about him, the more interesting he becomes to me. He's very quirky. He didn't believe in cars. You know, you should go everywhere on foot whenever that's possible. So he very much believed that your philosophy is something that you should live. If you don't live your, your, the ideas of your philosophy, what good is it? And I think we all know people who, especially in this age of social media, who who sort of uh, put out these philosophical ideas, but that's not how they live. And, but he really did live his philosophy. And I find him just endlessly interesting. And I'm looking for a way maybe to do a podcast or maybe to do some sort of project to bring his ideas to an English speaking audience. None of his books have been translated into English. Mm -hmm. um, so he's not very well known, even in Portugal, for people, I would say, under 40, under 40, 45. He's not terribly well known. Maybe those people, younger people in Portugal, maybe they saw one of his books on their grandfather's shelf. Mm -hmm. He's much better known among people over 50 who remember him, you know, from the 80s when he came back from Brazil and started, you know, he became kind of a, a, a popular figure in Portuguese culture because he warned the Portuguese about joining the European community. He said, you're going to, Interesting. Gonna, right. He said, you're going to lose a lot of what makes you Portuguese. If you just be careful with this, this European community, European union thing, because number one, you're not European. <laughs> that was also one of his main, one of his main ideas is the Portuguese are not European and throughout their history, when they try to be European, when they they try to fake being European, they fall flat on their face. <laughs> so, so for not European, what was his classification? Well, he, what he would say is, is that the Portuguese are more oriented toward, and he would say this about the Iberian Peninsula. So it's Portugal and Spain. They're less oriented toward Europe and more oriented toward Latin America and Africa. Hmm. And their attitudes about family and work and food 
and leisure time. In other words, the way they live their lives are very different from the European life. Their tolerance for the other is very different from the Europeans. And their, 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 how they view work, the role of work in their lives is quite different. And, you know, I've seen, as I, I've, I've done some other reading, I see that he wasn't the only one who, who, who said this. Mm-hmm. And through history, when they arrive on the Iberian Peninsula, they notice they're in a different sort of place. There's a lots of, you know, ties with Muslims in the, on the Iberian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And Jews, you know, the, the, of course, in Spain, there was the Convivencia, where Christians, Jews, and Muslims lived together. I mean, they also slaughtered each other from time to time. But for the most part, for, but there was a special kind of a, a, a tolerance among those three religions. And the same in Portugal. So, and this is not the European way. <laughs> this is not what the French or the Germans typically did. And they're quite, and then, you know, you look at Jose Saramago's novel, The Stone Raft, Jangada de Pedra, and in which the Iberian Peninsula literally breaks off of the continent of Europe and floats down to the South Atlantic between Latin America and Africa, where it belongs. <laughs> so, Interesting. So it, there's, a, there's a sensibility in Portugal and Spain that is, is just different from Northern Europe, from mainstream Europe. And I think he was very perceptive about that. And, you know, the more I learn about Portugal, I think he was right. I think he was probably essentially correct about that. And, and, but it's a fascinating topic and it has a lot to do with politics. And, you know, as, as somebody who grows up in the United States, if you're of Portuguese origin, you start to wonder, you know, you're living in a country with so many cultures, so mm-hmm. many different, incredible cultures. And you wonder, well, what is my culture? And what does it mean to be Portuguese? And what, what was the Portuguese role in history? And Agostinho has answers to those questions. He does. He gives you an answer. You may you may disagree with him. You may have a debate with him. But he does answer those questions. I I would say in a rigorous way, and you know, it's tied up in very Portuguese things. One example of that is the Feast of the Holy Spirit, which is a seven hundred year old that's that's mm-hmm. kept. A- mostly by uh, members of the Azorian diaspora around the world. For Agostinho, that feast, the ideas underpinning the rituals of that feast were a guide for the future of humanity. And Hmm. it's something he took very seriously. And it's something that that came up in in Paulo Borges' class, that the Feast of the Holy Spirit is a kind of a, um, a guide for how human beings could live in the future based on the, the three main rituals. If, you, if you're interested, I could just tell you that sure. the, three, the three rituals of the Feast of the Holy Spirit, there is the, uh, the crowning of the child. Mm-hmm. Right? A child is crowned as part of the feast. And for Agustinho, and I think it is, it is, it's an under, it's a, it's an idea that, that, that uh, is, is, uh, underpins the uh, the ritual what this means is 
every adult has an obligation to recover his inner child. And that inner child that you are is your true self. And it's the work of an adult. An adult has, has that task in life to recover that inner child, to discover who they, who they really are, and to start to view the world with the wonder, the curiosity of a child, but as an adult. And that's not so easy. It takes work mm -hmm. to do that ritual is a symbol of that. It, it points you to that. There's another tradition in the feast where they they free someone from jail. They, oh, they, I didn't know about that, that part. I'm pretty familiar with the festival, the the festa, but I didn't know about the free someone from jail part. So that was the, that was part of the tradition is that someone would be liberated from the local jail, and for Agustinio interprets that as as meaning that each of us has the obligation to liberate ourselves from the jail that we build for ourselves, the, our interior jail. And we all, you know, we grow up and we, we all constrain ourselves in various ways that nobody forces us to do. And we kind of limit ourselves. And that's kind of the inner jail that we build for ourselves. And when we free someone from jail, that is an encouragement to do the same inside of ourselves. Uh, and it also has to do with the idea that no one should be, you know, that, that freedom should be absolute. Nobody should be, should have their freedom taken away. But the most important freedom is the freedom that exists inside. And then the third idea is the communitarian banquet where everyone has a seat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, of course, very Portuguese, is that you share food with people and sharing food is, is, is a spiritual thing. You're, you're creating a community and everyone is invited. No one is turned away and everyone has, has a seat at the table. And those three ideas, you could sort of construct a political philosophy around those things. And that is Agustino's idea of what humanity eventually will be, where everyone has what they need and, you know, his whole theory about where humanity is going is based on a very Portuguese view of the world. Now, I think, you know, when I've, I've tried to describe this to my American friends, and they just, they think it's it completely insane. Well, it sounds like a utopia that's impossible to achieve, right? That's exactly right. It sounds like a utopia. And because it sounds sort of Catholic, people like, you know, I don't want to be associated with the, with the Catholic Church. And so people, you know, have some sorts of reactions to that. So when I, people have those reactions, what I realize is I'm not explaining it well enough. <laughs> <laughs> he really was not, he was not promoting uh, the Catholic Church, although, you know, he, he had great reverence for St. Francis of Assisi. Hmm. And, and, you know, and the church is, you know, central, you know, to his, his, his view of Portugal, but he wasn't out there promoting Catholic, the Catholic church or trying to get people to convert to Catholicism. That was not his aim. If anything, he was a pantheist and he believed in the future wouldn't be any religions. We would all be very spiritual without religion. And he believed the same about the economy, that eventually we wouldn't need jobs, that we would have enough abundance, that we wouldn't need to... That, see, that's what Americans have a time with. Yeah. So he's very famous. One of, the, one of the things he's famous for saying is 
man is not born to work. He's born to create, to be that poet on the loose. So when I told that to my wife, I said, oh, Agustin, listen to what Agustin said. And she said, oh, so he just wants to sit around and do nothing. He's lazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's lazy. Very, that's very Portuguese. You like just hang around. Yeah. And that isn't that isn't really what he's saying. So, but it, it takes some explanation to describe his idea about the role of work in a person's life and what what it can be and, and eventually what it will be, according to his kind of utopian vision. And people, you know, people would object to him also. You know, when he would describe it, people would say, oh, you're just a utopian. And his response was the world often ends up doing what the poets dreamed of. <laughs> and I think that's hmm. pro- I think there, there's something to that. There are so many aspects of our life today that our great grandparents would never have dreamed of, you know, to be able to speak face to face across the, the continent of the U.S., what would have sounded like something crazy to our great grandparents mm-hmm. or believable today it's it's commonplace and we're do, we're doing it right now mm-hmm. so Agustinho, i think in some ways does sound a little crazy to people but when you sit down and and really look into what he's saying he has i think very interesting answers to lots of questions lots of questions that are very relevant today sure so, I find it, you know, just endlessly interesting. Well, you certainly have a task ahead of you if, you know, not only translating, but explaining, you know, his philosophy and and what he means there. But because I will say I probably fall into the bucket of some of your American friends where some of what he says I can get on board with. But yes, it does sound a little utopian and you know kind of as long as there's bad humans in the world i think that would be very hard to achieve right however right. some of the things that you were talking about where he's not one side or the other he's very find your own path it sounds like and live your philosophy i think that's also a really key one that we very much can learn from and apply today so you know especially because we as you mentioned earlier we are so divided right politically um, as a country um well, it would be quite interesting to uh, dig a little bit deeper into some of these and have a few more debates or discussions and bring more people in, you know, because, you know, the thing that is disheartening for me to see when I look at our community and how politics have divided people, it's, you know, our, our celebrations and our communities are getting smaller and smaller, right. Just for the nature of life, people get busy, you know, we've, we've started marrying outside of the culture. So we have demands on our time that are different and our non-Portuguese spouse doesn't necessarily want to go to the fest that every weekend, like we did when we were kids. Right. Um, so we already have a lot of those factors chipping away, right? Now you throw on the political divide and now you're not going to go to the fest because your cousin is there and he's a Trump supporter and you hate Trump and how dare, you know, so now you're letting, these kinds of issues divide you and keep you away also. And I just, that's very heartbreaking to me because, you know, politicians don't care about us at all (laughs) in terms of, you know, whether we have relationships with our family can, you know, continuing or not. Right. That's, I don't think they care. So yeah, I I feel like there's a lot to be learned there. Right. I'm very glad you brought up the political divide because 
Agustinho has a response to that. Mm-hmm. And his now Agustinho, when he was uh, after he finished graduate graduate school, he was uh, he was teaching in and there was I, I believe it was called the Lake of Rallers. I'm not I don't remember the name of the law, but the Salazar regime started requiring people to, uh, especially those in education, I believe, to sign a pledge that they would never join a secret society. And Eushin refused to sign the pledge. And he said his position was, well, I don't belong to a secret society, but I might belong to one in the future, and I'm not going to promise. He can't make that promise. So as a result, he really came under the scrutiny of the regime. He had a very hard time. Uh, I don't know all the details of it. I, I, be, I believe he was in prison for a while. And the Salazar regime was pretty tough on people who did that sort of thing. So, and that's why Agostinho felt he had to leave Portugal and go to Brazil. And people later asked him. So he knew about political divisions. And I think people in Portugal, especially of that, that generation, knew about very intense political divisions. Agostinho... Mm-hmm. Agostinho, I think, has a very interesting response to that, which is, first of all, he later said he was grateful to Salazar for kicking him out of the country because he discovered all new parts of himself in Brazil that he would not have discovered otherwise. But but what he says, which I think is very, very relevant to the, the situation in the United States now and maybe globally, is his definition of political freedom. Like, what does it mean to be free politically? His definition was you have to be able to agree with your opponent and you have to be able to criticize your own side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you can't do those two things. So if you're, if you're a Democrat, if you cannot list the ways that Trump was right about several things, and if you can't criticize Joe Biden, how free are you? If you don't, in other words, if you're not free to do those things, if you're going to pay a political consequence for agreeing with Trump and disagreeing with Biden, are you free? That's a very useful definition of political freedom. And it sort of gets you out of, you know, here we are forced, I think, well, I'm using maybe the language is a little strong, but Americans now feel that they must choose one side against the other. Yeah, there must be a blind loyalty there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Blind loyalty, and you must never criticize your own side, mm-hmm. and you never agree with the other side. And for Agustinho, this was not freedom. And so, amen to that. I agree with that. <laughs> part of my experience, mm-hmm. I have political views that are in opposition, let's say, to whoever, but that doesn't stop me from saying, you know, that guy is right. He is mm. right. X, Y, and Z. And my, my people, they are wrong about X, Y, and Z. To me, that feels much more free than just blindly following one side and blindly opposing the other side. And mm-hmm. also, he didn't believe in political parties. He said a party is just a part of the whole, and you should be the whole. And so, you know, his view and, you know, so he knew he knew something about political divisions, very severe political divisions that affected his life. And he just chose not to not to participate in that. And I think that is one of his one of his messages that are it's very relevant to us today. So 
I hear exactly what you're saying. I think Agustinho, and for people who remember him, remember him very fondly, not as a conservative or a liberal, but for as someone who was just a, a, a profound thinker who could speak to anybody. He, he tells a very, and he used to say, some of the most cultured, intelligent people I've known were, were illiterate. He tells a beautiful story, beautiful story when he was in uh, Southern Brazil and he lived near a, an Azorian community. And most of the people, we're talking about the 1940s, most of those people were not literate. They couldn't read or write, but they loved going to the movies. And the, the films that were shown in that town were mostly foreign films with subtitles. So these Azorians would go to these films, they couldn't understand what the, the actors were saying, and they couldn't read the subtitles. So what did they do? They invented their own story to go along with what we're watching. <laughs> said, think about the, the, the creativity and the level of imagination it takes to invent your own story based on that film. He said, that's a level of creativity and originality that very literate people don't have. <laughs> and, you know, I actually had a similar experience. I met the woman who was my mother, my father's housekeeper in Portugal. At, in her 60s, she came to the U.S. She was illiterate, but she knew the mass by heart, the mass in Latin. Otherwise, she was illiterate. She was from, from Juncais, from a little uh, aldea. She did not, le never learned to read or write, but she loved all my children. And so she would watch, you know, American soap operas, and then she would tell me the story. And I thought, wow, she really put all of her energy into that story. She didn't understand what anybody was saying, but she invented her own story. She wrote her own soap opera. And for Agustinho, this was, you know, the height of imagination and creativity. And uh, so that explains why he was very drawn to people who didn't have traditional education, but they learned from life. They learned lessons from life. And of course, life is the best teacher. Mm -hmm. so, so even though he was, he had a PhD and he, you know, he spent his life with books, he wasn't, you know, chained to that. So people remember him as a very, that's what, you know, there's a tap aircraft named after him so like, oh, like cool. <laughs> so i noticed that and i so i noticed he made an impact on you know lots of people the professors mm -hmm. care less about him the academics never really cared to study him but he was a, a popular he was a sort of a, a philosopher for the for the people uh well this has been fascinating i I am so glad that I am now aware of Agustin de Silva and, and some of his thoughts. I look forward to any of the work that you produce, sharing his his philosophy on all sorts of things and the lessons we can learn from that. And, and you know, I think this merits another podcast or actually merit a whole series <laughs> on different elements of his thought. But thank you so much for raising him uh, as a subject for our conversation today. And there are a few, sounds like there's a few sites that we can include in the show notes for our listeners to go check him out and learn more about his writings and his thought. And yeah, this has been great. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Like we got to wrap it up, but this has been really wonderful, George. Thank you so much. 
Angela, I really enjoyed it. I'm very grateful for you to, to you for inviting me. And I look forward to talking more, to learning more, and uh, help me organize my thoughts a little bit about Agustina. So I'm very grateful to you. Yeah, no, this is amazing. We really look forward to uh, what you're able to produce and, and how we can share it with the community. So, And speaking of sharing, all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us for another episode of Tudo Português. Uh, please share this episode with family and friends. If you thought it was interesting, they will likely find it interesting as well. And then we'll have more people knowing about Agustin da Silva and all other aspects of conversation that we have on this podcast. Please subscribe and uh, encourage your family and friends to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes and that way more people will find us and we can have more of these fascinating conversations and, and uh, you know, keeping our, our, our culture and identity alive through, through conversation. And if you have a suggestion for a guest for this podcast, please email us at palcus at palcus.org. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. And um, thank you so much, George. Uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Angela. I look forward to it. Até a próxima. Até a próxima. Thank you for listening to Tudo Português, a podcast production by Palcas, the only national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community. To learn more about Palcas, how to become a member, or to suggest a guest for our show, visit www.palcas.org or email us at palcas at palcas.org.